Hello, old dogs. This is your host and top dog, Bill Manicero. Today's show is a special rebroadcast of one of our most popular episodes. I'm introducing the show under the banner, Best of Old Dogs REI Network Podcast. Well, enjoy. In a world where jobs are how most people make money, one man, one desire, one challenge dares to break the mold. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where we don't work for money. Money works for us. Coming soon, viewer discretion advised. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where cash flow is king. Real estate investing, the means, so you can enjoy your retirement dreams. This is the show where we cut right to the chase. No sales pitch, no long monologues, just simple how-to real estate investing advice, so you can earn the passive income you need to enjoy your retirement today. And now, your host and chief old dog, Bill Manassero. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. I'm your host, Bill Manassero, and this is the show where 50 plusers and anybody else who wants to join us get solid, no sales pitch real estate investing advice to help generate real cash flow. This podcast airs twice weekly on Mondays and Fridays, and if you aren't already a subscriber, Go to iTunes, or I think they call it now Apple Play. Uh, type in Old Dog, spelled D-A-W-G. Find our podcast and subscribe. Well, we have a real treat for you today. This is going to be a fun show. Uh, we have a knowledgeable, seasoned real estate investor here. And I am talking about Jay DeSima. Okay, he's also known as Fixer Jay, and you'll find out as we read his bio here. But uh, he is a seasoned real estate investor with over 50 years' experience. Okay, now you got to know he's definitely in the old dog category here, uh, specializing in fixing and rehabbing rundown houses and small multi unit properties. Jay is also a successful career changer, having worked more than 20 years for the telephone company before switching to become a full time real estate investor. Beginning in the mid-1980s, Jay began teaching others his high-profit fix-up strategies and unique landlording techniques, conducting fixture camps and seminars around the country, often sponsored by investment clubs. Jay is widely regarded as the king of fix-up on the national teaching circuit. In 1998, Jay began writing about his successful fix-up techniques and published his first book, Fixing Ugly Houses for Money. I love the titles here. And a, a self-help guide for do-it-yourselfers chronicling his own properties and experiences. The self-published book sold very well, which led to a second book, Investing in Fixer-Uppers, which became a number one best-selling book in 2003, was recognized by syndicated columnists as the San Francisco Chronicle and both the LA Times recognizing that book. 
To date, Jay has published six self-help books with sales exceeding 250,000. Somewhat different from others, Jay's self-help books are written specifically for investors like himself, part-timers and career changers willing to substitute their personal skills for a shortage of startup money. Today, Jay spends most of his time overseeing his rental properties and mortgage investments. He also continues writing and encouraging other investors via his popular telephone mentoring service. A Civil War buff, Jay's hobbies include reading about and visiting the Civil War battlefield, spending time relaxing in the beautiful Sierra Mountains, one of my favorite places. Uh, he's in the Lake Tahoe areas where he spends time, and mixing with other successful investors as a guest speaker on cruise ships, which he claims are working investments. Right. <laughs> anyway, Jay, welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. Uh, thank you, uh, Bill. That was quite an introduction there. I do meet the age criteria, that's for sure. Well, you know, just uh, just looking at that 50 years of experience, I figured you did. <laughs> you definitely have to be in the old yeah. dog category here. <laughs> um, like anyone else, there's a there's a there's a start out and a and a you know a beginning for everything. And uh, in the introduction there, you you pointed out that I am a career changer. And um, when you, as I look back over, uh, you know, starting really young, I, I started investing in bare land in California, uh, probably when I was uh, either 19 or 20. And the idea was, in California, they allow you to split large parcels into four different pieces, and that way I could sell off four pieces of land on a 40-acre parcel, and uh, after selling two of them, I'd have the whole thing paid for. That was kind of my first attempt at real estate, you know. I had no idea exactly where I wanted to be or anything like that, but I did like the idea of real estate, and I did like mountain property, so that's how I got started. It wasn't long before I uh, read enough to know that um, you know, I probably ought to switch to improved property, meaning rental type property. And, um, so I got drafted a, a little couple of years in the army, uh, in between and, uh, people who look at me at my age now, they say, what side were you on? So I say, no, 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 I was, on, I, I was actually on our side guys. <laughs> But when I got out, I uh, started investing in in um, houses, old junky houses and lots. That's how much money I had. I didn't have much money, so um, I realized, um, you know, I'd have to take kind of uh, what was left over, Bill. Right. So I started buying REOs in Sacramento, the capital of California. Uh, that's where I was stationed at the time with the phone company, although I did move around quite a bit. Now, I'm still at the phone company, and uh, I'm moonlighting. So I worked my shift, then I put the old coveralls on, and I buy one house at a time. And I go out there and start swinging the hammer, sometimes up till midnight or longer, use up my vacations, my uh, weekends and everything else on these fixtures and uh, doing all the work myself and making the early mistakes of overfixing and all of that. You, you have to get those mistakes done made so you can be by them. 
And uh, but anyway, that was my beginning. Now, how did you find those houses? Uh, these were what is called what they call the uh, bank takebacks or REOs. Uh, these are foreclosed by the in this case savings and loans we used to have in California. They're they, they went the way of dinosaurs now, but. At the time, just think of banks, bank take back. So I would go into the bank and I'd say, you got a bunch of junky houses here on the foreclosure? Oh, yeah, we got them. They'd give me a list. And I'd go out and pick one out. They'd sell it to me for three or $400 down, start taking payments. That's what I'd do. Really? And would they finance it too? Or did they? how did they do that? Yeah, they, oh, yeah. Mo- yeah, most, most of banks will do that. When they have stuff on the books like that, now these were junked houses. A lot of times they had tenants in them, and then the mortgage holder quit paying. Maybe he was a landlord, and he just got fed up. Maybe the tenant tore the house up, and that's the condition the bank got them back in. Not every one, but the worst ones. So, and, and when you're dealing with the worst ones, then you sort of command the negotiations because the bank, they want to rid themselves both of the liability and, of course, the asset itself, which ties up their books, you know. So they want to get rid of it. They're, they're pretty flexible. Yes, Bill. Now, were you a pretty handy guy already? I mean, uh, you know, you said you went over there with your tool belt and uh, so forth. Yeah, I when I... When I got out of the, I'll tell you a little short story. When I got out of the Army, I got a GI house. The GIs financed them for veterans. For $100 down, I paid, I think I paid 12005 for this house when I got out of the Army. That's a long time ago. We don't have 12000 now. But I, I wondered back then, what my year God, was that? where am I? Uh, that would have been, let's see, I got out of the service in uh, 1955. Gotcha. So it was a Korean War? Yeah. Uh, yes. The, I went in just as the Korean War ended. Mm, gotcha. Uh, I often tell people that's why it ended. When I got drafted, they heard about it. <laughs> they heard I was coming. They quit. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, all over Jay's on his way. <laughs> <laughs> so so this GI house, I, I write quite a bit about it, but basically, no, I didn't have any experience up till that. You know, I could always work on cars or something when I was a kid. Um, I worked around my parents' place, you know, uh, like little tasks that my mother wanted done thing, but uh, no, I had no special, but on that GI house, it was a naked deal. They didn't have lawns, no fences or anything. It was bare, bare, bare house. And I started improving and fixing and building fences and patios and adding on gizmos in the rooms and, you know, electronics back and forth to the hardware store, kind of learning a, a little, you know, I had a lot of energy and so so I, I tell people about the story. A guy came in one day selling a, a, a freezer plan where you get you buy his freezer and then they give you food every 30 days, trying to sell me one of those packages. 
And he looked around. And he says, "My God, you, you, this house really looks nice." He says, "What, what do you, what have you been doing? Who did that?" I said, "Well, I did it." Well, you know, um, my God, this is great. You know, you ought to do this stuff for money. Kind of a little light went on there, because I, I had the most over improved house in my little subdivision track. Um, and you might say, I call it back there when I look back at it, I say, uh, I was a fixer without a cause. I ran out of stuff to do. I, you know, I'm doing things two and three times over at my place. So, so uh, I thought, well, you know, let's, let's try. Maybe, maybe we should look at rentals here, and that's kind of what triggered me. So so I was only 21 or 2 back there. To answer your question, I had no not, no real skills when I first started. Uh, I'm kind of like the carpenter, you know, the the amateur carpenter, carpenter that cut the board three times and it was still too short. That was me. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like my my experience here as a fixer upper. My pl- my plumbing, you know, my plumbing required about four or five trips to the hardware store before I finally got the right part. You know, but but this is how you learn. And when you don't have any uh, money to, you know, I mean, I'm doing all my own labor. I'm making mistakes, but when I make one, then I just do it over again. Right, right, that's right. I tell people sometimes you want to get a little jump start on this, and you live in an area where um, they're building new houses, various stages of construction. Make visits out there and look at the different stages. The framing stage is done, then they begin putting the electric or the, the plumbing and the electrical in. Go out there, you know. In the evening after work, you uh, we don't even have the walls up on the outside. You you wander around, take notes, see how things are done. I did quite a lot of that. Interesting. That's uh, yeah. To kind of learn how the other other guys are doing it. Learn how the other guys are doing. You got it. And uh, I, I I remember one time when I ran into a problem. I call it the gurgling sink. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was redoing a bathroom on an old house, and I put in a new formica top and, and, and vanity in the bathroom and an oval sink, and I got everything hooked up, and I turned on the water, and it wouldn't go down. Gurgle, gurgle, blurp, 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 blurp. So I took it all apart. I thought it was plugged up. Put it back together, blurp, 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 blurp. So I said, oh, my goodness, I don't know what to do now. So I drove out to a track. This was in Sacramento. And I found me a house out there, that, and I looked at the plumbing in the bathroom, and I couldn't see anything different. You know, the walls were open, exposed uh, with the plumbing, and I'm looking for what I've done wrong. I couldn't see it. On the way out, there was a plumber, and uh, I said, uh, you guys, I said, uh, you know, um, have you ever had a sink that you got a new sink and it just blurp, blurp, blurp and won't go down the water? And the guy says, well, is it vented? I said, is it what? <laughs> <laughs> I had no vent. 
so you put that uh, vent never, in and boom, went right down. Huh? Yeah, put that in and the water <laughs> went on down, you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, so, so stuff like this, this is how I learned. And, and you can also learn how framing works uh, on these houses. And you can learn everything by going out there and watching these and taking a few notes. Nowadays, of course, you got phones with pictures and everything else. It's much easier today. You got YouTube today. Because even the big box <laughs> yeah. stores, if if I take a pack, if I go buy material at a big box store like a Lowe's or something, not only does the clerk, he can be very helpful, um, especially if you get one of the old dogs, you know, it's been around. Yeah, those are the guys I like to talk to. <laughs> yeah, you talk to a guy. I learned how to put in sprinkler systems exactly that way from from a Lowe's guy. But anyway, you know, the the pictures are on the back of the box and on the containers, and you got a lot of really helpful hints. And then there's these magazines on plumbing, electrical. Now, I don't mean we're building a house or anything. I don't mean that. What I'm doing is putting things back together and trying to get them right on these old junkers. You know, I'm not building houses or anything. Right. Um, but I want to know how this stuff kind of works. And so uh, it was like, uh, basically I used the cut and try method. And after a couple of years, I have to tell you, Bill, nothing on any house frightened me or represented a, a, a challenge that I feared. I mean, I, I figure, well, I may have to do it three times, but I'll get the doggone thing done. Yep, that's that's the way to do it. Yeah, so so I had no fear of fix up. Now, with the losing of that fear, back to the bargaining table. I kept when I would look at these lists they gave me, I'd drive out and look at them. I would take my houses that I would purchase kept looking worse and worse. In other words, I knew I could fix this stuff up. And I knew also I could get a cheaper price if the place was trashed and looked terrible. So it seemed like the the, the houses that I was buying I kept getting worse. <laughs> but I kept getting them cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so you're buying these houses and you're, you're fixing them up. Yeah. Okay, and that uh, that alone is a huge education. Yep. But then you're renting them out, and that's a whole different ballpark. Okay, that's a whole different game. Now you're becoming a landlord. Yes. How did you take to that water there? Uh, I did fairly well with that. Uh, you know, I had some mistakes, obviously, but I had some beginner's luck. Uh, the big problem that I ran into, uh, my houses were about, I had about 23 of these separate houses in the east side of Sacramento. I stayed in one area. By the way, I, re I recommend any investor have a little, oh, you might call it a garden area, uh, but stay in one area because you don't want to be driving miles and miles of uh, having these apart. So if you decide to go into the north part of your town and to invest, stay in the north part, you know, if it's a big town. Right, right. And uh, I learned I learned that as I went along because I had some of these that were maybe 30 minutes away, and that's too far when you got a bunch. Now remember, I'm still working 
days for the phone company, and I got these 23 houses out there with tenants hanging out the window. Oh and I'm the landlord. Now, what happens if you get, all of a sudden, somebody breaks a, a water line or something, and you're at work? Well, I've got to send out a plumber. I've got to pay to send out a plumber. Okay, so you got guys that you would call that... Well, I don't got, no, I don't got guys. I just developed out of, you know, I would have to hire a licensed contractor because I couldn't get out there. If if it were something simple, the, you, you know, I could drive by and maybe fix it. But if, say, I lost a water heater or something, you can't let people sit around there. You got to do. And so... Um, like you say, if it's something electrical or the water's running, you've got to pay someone to go fix it. Yeah, it's got to be fixed right away, right? It's got to be fixed. Yeah, and and you and I. That's a mistake, by the way, Bill. That many uh, landlords, young landlords starting out, make. They find they're in a position like I was, and the little lady calls in on a Wednesday. And she says, you know, my toilet's not flushing. The kids in there, they just keep overflowing and this and that. And uh, the landlord says, well, uh, can you wait till Friday, uh, Saturday? Uh, that's when I'm off work. Well, how would you like that answer if you're the lady with two kids? Oh, yeah. No, that would be a very happy tenant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But first of you know, nowadays they'd probably sue you, but back then, you know, that you you wouldn't have them as a tenant very long. They, uh, so you have to make that a con. Now, now I was smart enough to know that I could not let repairs go. You cannot. That's a cardinal sin for landlords, and especially amateur landlords just starting out. They stall on the fixing. They stall. And you get the tenants hopping mad, and not only that, it's not good service. Not good. It's not good service at all. Well, I still think today it's like the number one reason a lot of people um, leave a, a property uh, is because uh, the landlord is slow or or non, you know, non-respondent to uh, problems like that. Ah, uh, yes, you're 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 absolutely right. Uh, uh, that is, and that is why you see. All of this interest in flipping. Now, flipping is not something, and it looks like some new craze or something. It's not. We've been flipping, you know, little contractors that go out and build houses and sell them. They've been flipping houses for 100 years. This is nothing new. But uh, we've got TV flipping Vegas, Texas, and I don't know where else, but we're just flipping everything. And it seems like – and. The reason these have become popular, in my opinion, it avoids landlording. Hmm. Yeah, but you don't have that constant rent check coming in each month. Uh, you know, you get 38 properties, like you were saying. That's a nice, nice little income. Yeah. Uh, you, you're at, uh, yeah. See, I can tell you're an old dog. You're starting to think about steady income. That's what old dogs do. That's what we do. <laughs> We're always looking for that. You're, and you're absolutely correct on that. We're looking for that. And there's no flipper. Uh, you know, I've been around this business for many, many years, uh, as you pointed out already. And um, to my knowledge, yeah, yeah, I've never ran across 
a millionaire flipper that stayed a millionaire very long. He might be one for two years or so. And then the bank quits making loans or we go into a recession, people quit buying and they lose it all. Uh, flipping is um, the selling of inventory. There's no tax advantages, absolutely none. You can't do common trades of equity, 1031s. So, um, you know, it's it's kind of pie in the sky, really. But, but the one big thing it does, and uh, it's enough for a lot of people, it means I don't have to go plunge toilets. I'm not a landlord. Right, exactly. Now, did, now, did you um, collect your rents at that time, or did the people mail them? Yes, in? I did. No, you, no. So, like, you had them uh, well, all in the one I area, would, right? Yeah, I had them all, and I tried to get them to mail them. Uh-huh. I always try to get them to mail them, and if they don't mail them, we have to, you know, people who like had limited. Remember, now I'm on the lower end. I've always been in the lower end of housing. Right. People say, well, why is that? Isn't that a lot of trouble? Well, uh, it, it, it it may be more trouble than others, uh, certainly, because these people lack um, the assets of wealthier people. Uh, their jobs are worse jobs. Their service jobs takes two of them to pay the rent. Yes, uh, there, there are those parts to it. However, 80% you'll find of the renters can rent in that lower part. That's So the big majority of renters in any town fit that lower lower income range. So, um, I, I you know, I don't want to buy houses that only 10% of the people in my town will rent. Yeah, more expensive houses, in other words. So uh, w- one thing that uh, is interesting is how you, you sort of transitioned into this area where you will buy one lot with multiple houses on it. Do you want to talk about that and how you kind of came into that? Yeah, yeah. Well, it it, it pivots off the 23 houses in Sacramento. Long story short there, 23 rentals. And if two of my rents don't come in, maybe two and a half, then I'm putting my telephone paycheck in there to make up negative. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm a big wheel investor with 23 of these houses for rent. And I and I have to put my job earnings from the phone company in to, to make it on some months. Uh, that don't sound like a path to millionaire. This sounds like a path of stupidity. <laughs> and I must be, do, you know, I'm a, I must be doing something wrong. Well... It was very simple, but, you know, after many years, of course, everything is simple. But, but you know, when I bought these things, I'd pay a few hundred dollars down. That meant I owed probably 95 to 98% still to pay for the houses, which meant the mortgage was pretty high. So by the time I pay the mortgage payments and do, you know, just necessary stuff taking care of them, I don't have any money left over, or very little, we'll say. Even on a good month, very little cash flow. And I thought to myself, 23 houses and no cash flow. I, you know, I gotta be, I gotta be the dumbest investor in the world. <laughs> There's something going wrong. I can't, 
you know, I don't. There's no way I can brag about this. And and everybody at work, they said, "Well, he's rich. He's got twenty houses." <laughs> <laughs> so the spread between your 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 mortgage, uh, the 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 rent you're getting in. And and then yeah, your insurance, your 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 property taxes, and your other expenses in the yes. property. Uh, yeah. yeah. What, what were you averaging a property? Do you know like uh, what what was your cash no, flow? No, I haven't. Uh, the answer would be not enough. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, uh, like I say, I always tell people, if two and a half houses out of twenty three didn't pay rent, you might say that's break even. Any more than that, I'm putting money in to make up the difference. Right, right. So, so, and that was the reason. And, of course, there are older houses and things. You know, when you own older houses, things break more than they do on newer ones. Uh, for the most part, we're talking averages now. And, and so you got to be prepared to fix things and, and, and do things like that. And when I went through these old houses and fixed them up, now, we're not talking... There's a big difference between remodeling and fix-up. Remodelers go in, they replace everything, bring everything up to date. That's not what a fixer does. You're not going to make any money doing that. Far too expensive. You'd be better off to build a new house. So fix-up is what we do is we make sure the house is serviceable. Oh, there's no leaks and the pipes are holding and the electricity works. The walls are nice and freshly painted, and you put a cheap uh, GI carpet in there, you know, FHA carpet or something like that, and, and get the hell out of there and rent it. You, you don't go beyond that. You don't go changing a lot of stuff out. I know guys that change wiring out because it has the old uh, two-wire system non-grounded. Now, you know, these people will go broke in this type of business. Um, they will go broke. I mean, uh, they're, they're, you you can't spend uh, all this money. You'll, you won't get it back is what, is what happens. And um, so big difference. Uh, I'm not a remodeler. I'm a fixer. Got it. Got it. That's a good distinction. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And not only that, you can change the looks of a property that is – that is real. I, I won't, I'm a little ahead of myself, perhaps, but buying ugly properties, you know, I'm, uh, the bushes grown up over the, sometimes over the, <laughs> as high as the roof, nobody's there, you know, and a couple of junk cars sitting around on blocks and a backyard full of crap that people have left. Uh, you can go in there with two or three guys in a trailer and blitz that baby and clean that up over a weekend and get a paint job on it the following week. People will never, ever know how bad you know, that looked. They, they'll drive, my God, they, you know, what happened to that house? You know, it looked terrible. Look at it now. It's completely transformed. And And you do that all on the outside. I haven't even been inside yet, we'll say. People, the vast majority of people buy on looks. They buy on looks. Uh, if I were to run a fixer ad in the big newspaper, uh, this is kind of out now. I'm, ta I'm sort of dated here, but um, 
used to be people in newspapers would put a for sale fixer, 1829 Oregon Street, uh, 39000 Boy, everybody jumped in their car on Sunday and went out to look at that bargain, right? Because it's cheaper and fixer. It just told them I'm going to get a bargain. Once they got there, they looked at it through the window without even getting out of the car and said, my God, I expected a fixer, but not this. <laughs> it's the way it looks, you know. So their appetite is gone when they drive. Let's just go get an ice cream cone and forget this one. Right. And, and of course, that's the one they probably, you know, they ought to be looking at. Right. Well, just just try, I wanted to kind of move back just a little bit here. I was talking about uh, you were talking about okay. how you went from having all these individual homes on different lots, okay, and then you were yes. realizing. Yeah, I'm not making any money here um, because yes. I've got, you know, I've got this, you know, I've, you know, a couple of people don't pay and it's already a tight, you know, spread already right. on the cash yes. flow. So you started looking at, um, you know, this this other opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I started looking. Uh, I, I I knew I was not doing so so well the way I was going and several opportunities come up that I had overlooked before and they would be places and this was in Sacramento as well uh, a lot of rural area there are still in the city limits but rural you know compared to the downtown we'll say but a lot of lots um, had uh, a little driveway they might be a third of an acre even a half uh, and they would have a little driveway from the street up into the property. And then there would be two or three duplexes on one side of the driveway and maybe three or four on the other or a couple of houses or maybe a small three-unit apartment. In other words, you drive up the driveway and you had six, eight, ten units up that driveway. So those, to me, I thought in the beginning, well, I can never afford those. I mean, look, <laughs> there's nine places back here. You know, and even though they were junky looking, I could fix them fine. But my God, I mean, I don't, you know, the guy's going to, this. you know, I'm used to buying one house for a certain amount. I, I don't have the kind of money. But, but I didn't realize it at the time that, Sometimes it's easier to buy those. I learned this afterwards, of course, because I, I initially went in there and bought one, and I found out that, uh, no, I didn't need a bigger down payment. Uh, I had a guy that uh, wanted out. He didn't like the tenants. Tenants uh, were, were going against him, and he was having all kinds of problems. So he sold to me for, uh, I forget now the number, but it wasn't a great down payment. So I end up, I think that first one was seven units. Just to clarify, these are seven when yeah. you say units. You mean seven separate houses yeah. on one lot. They, they could, yes, they, on, on one AP, that is correct. And, and they're all over the country, Bill. Are they, wait, are they one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom? It, it don't matter. It, it don't matter what they are. It don't matter. Uh, Typical one. Yeah. Let me tell you my, my best house, my most money-making structure, 
is a two-bedroom, one-bath, 700-square-feet house. That's my highest moneymaker. Wow. Now, people say, well, who wants a two-bedroom? Well, all of these young kids and seniors, that's who wants them. They want affordable. Let me tell you this. When I have a situation like what I just described to you, here's a driveway turned off the, the, the main road, and we drive up, and here's a house sitting over here, 700 square feet, two-bedroom. Here's three of them in a row. And then I look on the other side of the street, maybe there's a duplex plus two more of these, and maybe there's a one-bedroom or a three-bedroom in the mix. These were built in the 40s. Generally speaking, they're unfinanceable. You want to underline that by the banks. No bank wants these old houses, and especially run down. And generally speaking, in any town you go to, they're in the wrong zone as far as current zoning laws are concerned, okay? They may be in C zoning, which is commercial, you may find them in R1 zoning, which means only one house. However, as long as they're in use as rental property, they are grandfathered in and can remain that way as long as you keep that status up. Okay, let me ask you a quick question here. Just, I'm sorry. On, yes. When you say unfinanceable, to purchase these... Unfi because no bank wants them. They don't want them. So how do you purchase them? Yeah, cash only? Seller financing. Seller financing. Ah, okay, okay. And and that leads us to this leads us to a real big uh, money making opportunity, a huge money making opportunity. When I started out, I had absolutely no idea of what I just said just said to you there. I said, well, what do you mean, money-making? What do you mean? It sounds like it's costing money to me. No, 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 no. I, I don't want to jump off just yet on this, but when buyers and sellers can come together and do the transaction themselves, this is the ultimate game here in my business. It really is. Because sellers and buyers can do anything they wish. Banks have all kinds of rules and regulations and how many loans have you got and all of the, you, you know what I'm saying, all the rules. And, and if I were to find this group of houses in an R's, in a uh, R1 zone or a zone for commercial property, that's a fish in the wrong pond. Right off the bank, they say, we're not going to finance that. That's commercial property. Well, I'm using it as residential rental property is what I'm using it for. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, the zoning is C down there. We're not going to do anything with that. Uh, take my word. They won't finance them. And not only that, but built in 1940s. The codes have changed. The electrical boxes need a, you know, all kinds of things need to be done. So when you buy, and this was a pivoting point in my life, when you buy 
five or more units on one property, you are into what the bank now calls commercial lending. Okay? And commercial lending is what Trump builds Trump Towers with, or there's sprawling shopping centers or huge multi-unit buildings and things of that sort. So you're not going to get a commercial loan on seven junky J J-type properties. You're not going to get a loan. Um, so that what that means is the guy that owns those, he also knows that or will find it out. And he can't sell what he has unless he carries financing. Nobody runs around and pays cash for these in the first place. My average down payment is around 10% for everything I've ever bought. And so, but nobody pays cash, and particularly when they're run down. Now, Jay, just to clarify, me? yeah, um, the now this is still the case today, or was this back then when you were when you were doing this? Oh yeah, no, this is the case. This is the case right now, today. Interesting, interesting. Wow, man, this is a this is a very lucrative specialty I'm in, and very people get as far into it as I have. And, um, and, and, and I will tell you this, there are so many benefits to doing business in this manner. I will talk about the benefits, but I want to talk about this conversion from the single family over to the multiple. Now, what you find when you do what when you make that switch over into the multiples, you find that you get your unit price way down. So if I go out to buy a, a, a junky single-family house, let's just use today's maybe numbers. I'll just make this up. But let's just say if I found a junky old two-bedroom house on a lot, which, you know, maybe I could get it for $90,000, that's one unit for 90000 Now, if that happens to be the same house in a conglomeration of seven other units up the driveway, that unit price probably will be 40000 not 90. When you compare it, in other words, you divide the seven into the price, you'll probably find that you're buying these unit prices are way down from buying the single one. You understand that? Yeah, right. And when you rent them, guess what? They rent just as well as the one sitting there by itself or very close to it. And people like, I'm talking tenants, and especially the lower-income tenants that we serve, they love to have They'll take these old houses over new apartments, new double-story apartments, you know, where you got got 100 apartments and they look like a big motel, um, upstory and then downstairs. But there's no privacy, and you got to park in space 17, and you can't bring your poodle, and there's no place for Junior to play because you got a little lot out here, and you got you can only use it between the hours of 9 and and one yeah and, and so so with my kind of property i have little yards little fences and uh and, and privacy because they are small detached houses but they're all on one lot 
People love those. I'll rent mine four times faster than you'll rent a brand new apartment with fluffy rugs because of this privacy element. Once they live uh, in a place like, well, well, actually what happens with the single young people, now I rent to basically young people and old people. The ones in the middle, if they've got much on the ball, they're out there buying houses and that kind of thing. I'm not in that market. I'm not, I don't have anything for sale. What I'm in is the rental business. I want the income coming. So um, my customers are the, the young people uh, and the older people. So um, this is what they want. And, and, and once young kids who live in these big apartment complexes, once they get a girlfriend or a boyfriend or have a kid or something, they want privacy. And they get away from that apartment, uh, and they come to uh, a lesser, shall we say, amenity property like mine, but yet a lot more privacy is what they get. And, and that's the way of humans. That's fascinating. That really is. That's uh, where, where do you and how do you, so I've got two questions here, where and how do you find these properties? Uh, just get in your car and drive. You're not going to, don't turn no computers on and don't look for no lists and you don't have to pay some guy to get a list um, on your computer or any of that. You got to get out. Once you learn how to spot these things, you'll see them in your sleep. That's the main question people who want to get into my, you know, and I taught seminars for a long time. Um, I was right outside Disneyland one time with a uh, seminar at one of the hotels down there. And I had a, I don't know, there might have been 70 or 80 in the class there. And so the guy said, well, you know, this is Orange County. We don't have any of this stuff like you do up north. I said, hey, you do, but you're not used to seeing them. Uh, I said, I'll tell you what I'll do after seminar. One of you guys get the car and I'll ride in the back seat. Uh, and if I can't find you uh, several of these here in the first 15 or 20 minute drive, I'll buy all of you's dinner tonight. But if I do, you buy my dinner. <laughs> we had about six. Uh, now, now, granted, they weren't for sale, but I'm talking about the type of properties. Gotcha. I had about six of them nailed down there before we hardly left. And uh, we're, we're, we're just down by Disneyland. So. You know, they're there, but people, they don't notice them. If you turn a driveway, up a driveway off a main street, and you see little houses on each side, it probably don't dawn on you that they're probably under one ownership. I mean, you're not thinking that way. But then after your brain gets checked in and you learn what you're looking for, you'll see they have similar paint jobs, the construction is similar, and uh, you, you'll see when you see seven mailboxes out in front of the first unit, there's hardly anybody I know demands seven mailboxes. Something's going on there. Right. Yeah. So you would find these properties, and I guess you would have to do some research huh, with the county or something to find out who the owner is. No, no, is. I don't do no research, but no, no, uh, no, no, no. I go out there. Yeah. Well, in certain areas of your towns, yeah, I live in a town with less than 100,000. 
and I owned properties at my high water mark. I owned them in every direction in this town, and there's plenty of them left in my town today. You know, I mean, we're never going to run out. And even smaller towns, even smaller towns, for California people. Um, I used to tell California people doing seminars, once you come down the grapevine on Interstate 5, the major highway, once you descend and head north, just about any turnoff to a town with 10,000 or more has oodles of these kinds of properties. That's the way they used to build. And, and they're older, and a lot of people saw the value of retaining these for rentals. Uh, they don't make a big splash about it. A lot of older people have used these for retirement, and they sell them when they, when they can no longer handle them or one of them passes away. Those are people I've bought from over the years. Uh, as a matter of fact, my two number one buying uh, uh, techniques are buying from people who are um, retiring. They've had multiple units on one property, like we're talking, for many years, served them well. They can no longer physically. The, maybe the man passed away and the lady can't handle it. Uh, that's number one. And number two, people who buy these and can't learn landlording or won't learn landlording, and the tenants are driving them to suicide. So they'll sell those properties to get the hell away from them. They can't handle the tenants. So those are the two buying cases there that have been top-notch for me. So how did you find the owner of the property? Well, I drive, I, well, I, I drive around, and I look at properties that are not for sale, but they're the kind of properties that if they were for sale, I'd be interested in, okay? And I make a little, ye on a yellow notepad, I just draw a little sketch and I put blocks for seven units or 10 units or whatever, put the address down and that's what I do. And I build up my files surprisingly over the, you know, over a term of a few years, these come on the market, I know all about them. And they may come through a broker because most people, you know, that are not really, I mean, they may own, but you got to spend some shoe leather in the street and find these things in areas that you would like to invest in. And I teach people, go out there, drive around, take, take, let's take a half a day and go out and drive on the west side of my town. Let's just drive up and down the streets. And when we spot a property that looks like our kind of property, let's just stop across the street and make a little note there on the yellow pad that we it looks like it has eight units and uh, this maybe the dimension of the lot or something like that and just draw a few little things. Take about five minutes on a yellow pad and uh, just note it. Now, it's not for sale. Now, you brought up the county and all this other business before, and I'm going to tell you what I might do. Usually when a property looks good and is well run and it's not for sale, there's not much uh, chance of me doing anything. There is, however, a much better chance 
if this property I view is run down and not being taken care of, okay? When I see that sort of thing, too many people hanging around like drugs or something like that, when I see that kind of thing, I want to investigate a little further. So what I'll do is you can you can do this uh, on a computer nowadays, but I, I used to go down to the county tax office and get the tax bill, see where taxes are. are uh, this is public information, by the way. And uh, you, once you get the AP, then you can go down and, and find out where the tax bill is being sent, and that'll be the owner. And if I find that the owner lives in L.A., I start to rev up a little because now I got a guy that lives 700 miles away. He probably don't even know what's going on up here. And I may communicate with a little letter to him. And and uh, what I would, you know, I I won't I won't insult him or anything, but I'll say, you know, I, uh, dear Mister Jones. Uh, uh, I own some rentals down beyond your place at 970 Free Bridge Street, and I can't help but notice how they seem to be going downhill every time I drive by. And I says, maybe you've hired a manager like I used to have one time before he lost me $100,000. I said, uh, you know, by, by mismanagement. And I said, um, you know, I'm in the fix-up business, and uh, if there's anything I could ever do or a service I could offer, uh, you give me a call. And by the way, P.S., if you should ever decide to sell, give me a call. Something like that, an exploratory letter, right? Right. And a lot of times I'll shake something loose. I'll shake something loose. And if the property really looks bad and got a bunch of pit bulls on it and uh, guys with no shirts and tattoos, I'll snap a couple of pictures and put those in with a letter. That's great. That's great. Awesome. Well, we will have links to all those things in our show notes. So there'll be a, a great opportunity for folks to, uh, to go direct. Good stuff. Well, it's great having you on. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. This concludes part one of our podcast series entitled Affordable Multifamily Housing. Stay tuned for the exciting conclusion on Monday, December 2nd. I also want to thank all our old dog listeners out there, too, for joining us. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing right now, but the fact that you've taken the time to join us means a lot, and we really appreciate it. Everything talked about today uh, is going to be accessible in our extensive detailed show notes on the Old Dogs website at olddogsreinetwork.com forward slash blog. Thank you so much for listening. That's the show for today. Remember, cash flow is king and real estate investing the means. Until next time, keep moving forward and may God bless. Thank you very much for visiting the Old Dogs REI Network. We would greatly appreciate if you would stop by iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more visible the podcast will be to others. Thank you.